Hello and welcome to Engage with Eagle Forum. My name is Kirsten Hassler and I am the Executive Director. Today I'm joined by my colleague, our Political Director, Tabitha Walter. Hi everyone. Today we have with us Elaine Donnelly, a longtime ally of Eagle Forum and a friend of Phyllis Schlafly. Elaine is also the founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness, an independent nonpartisan public policy organization that reports on and analyzes military and social issues. CMR has advocated for high, uncompromised standards in all forms of military training and sound priorities in the making of military and social policies since its founding in 1993. Thank you for joining us, Elaine. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Elaine, like Phyllis, you have a passion for preserving traditional conservative values. How did you come to know Phyllis? Well, like many women who were involved in Eagle Form, I saw her on television. One of the things she said kind of caught my attention about drafting young women. I had two toddlers at the time. That kind of caught my attention. And I decided to go see my own Congresswoman, Martha Griffiths, who was, she was considered the mother of the ERA and sat down with her. She confirmed everything that Phyllis Schlafly had said. And she came to the conclusion, and it was prophetic, I have a feeling we're not going to be on the same side. And that was an understatement because I realized that if I disagreed with what Martha Griffiths and the organized feminists were saying, then it would be up to me to speak up. And that's what I did, starting right there. Back in the late 1970s, uh, during those years, the Jimmy Carter years, there was an International Women's Year conference, big shebang headed by people like Bella Abzug and every feminist in the world was there. And we all kind of learned the ropes. My specialty at that time was media access. I'm one of the very few conservatives who understood what the FCC rules were all about, something called fair time. If you asked for it the right way, uh, you could get a measure of time to get some balance on media. Back then, we didn't have conservative media the way we have it now. So I not only learned the ropes of FCC regulations, uh, like many others in Eagle Forum, I trained others to do the same thing. And we approached station managers around the country to get fair time during the ERA debate. Probably about $2 million worth of fair time. They had $10 million to spend after the International Women's Year Conference. And it did the trick. I mean, it was one tool in getting across the notion that not all women agreed that ERA was a good thing for women. It was obviously a bad thing for reasons, many reasons that Phyllis had brought out. But that was my specialty at the time. I, I dealt with media access at all levels, national, uh, state level, and, uh, and local. I was also active in uh, Michigan Republican politics. Uh, one thing leads to another. I was a Reagan delegate in 1984. Um, during that time, or after that time, I was appointed to an advisory committee in the Pentagon. Phyllis wondered why I was in a feminist Pentagon advisory committee. I said I wanted to find out what was going on because I was still interested in that military issue. And that's where I learned about the military initially. Um, it was a, quite a, an educational experience. I saw women who were very impressive in the armed forces. Uh, I realized that not all of them agreed any more than any group of women agrees on all the major issues. Fast forward many years later, I was appointed to a presidential commission on women in the military. Women in combat was our focus. And uh, it was a 
a very interesting experience. But after that experience was over, I realized there was no organization that was staying current on the military social issues. So I founded my own organization, Center for Military Readiness, that was 27 years ago. And uh, I've been very honored to have, as uh, many of my mentors and advisors, high-level uh, people in the military, people of rank, and of course, uh, people of all ranks, really. And I spend a lot of time researching and writing about military social issues from a very independent perspective. Uh, we're not a veterans group and we don't deal with hardware. We talk and write about military social issues. And I know from personal experience, you have been such a great asset to our organization on those issues. So we appreciate your leadership on that. Obviously, if you're working side by side with Phyllis, you're working on the ERA issue. So can you tell us about your experience with the anti-ERA movement that you were part of? The issue of whether women should be subject to selective service registration in the draft, that was an issue, as I say, uh, that caught my eye. I wanted to find out why the feminists thought that was a good idea. So I did research a lot of feminist literature to find out and they are quite determined. I also came in contact with a number of female officers, very careerist in their focus, and I understand and respect them. I do not claim to speak for them or for enlisted women, of course not, but the enlisted women outnumber the officers five to one. All I can tell you is their voices are not being heard. There is no evidence that the majority of women want to be assigned to the direct ground combat units like the infantry, units that attack the enemy with deliberate offensive action. And yet, in the Obama administration, the decision was made to treat women exactly like men. And that was um, an, uh, certainly an ill-advised decision. Uh, all of the evidence from the US Marine Corps indicating that this was not a good idea. They did field tests that were unprecedented, finding that in mixed gender units, 69% of the time, they were not as effective as the all-male units in the combat arms. Again, we're talking about very realistic, scientifically monitored field tests that were done in 2015. The Commandant of the Marine Corps at that time asked for exceptions for the infantry and special operations forces. His view was overruled, and they proceeded with this social experiment, and frankly, it has not been going all that well. Uh, rates of injuries are very high. The level of, of interest in the combat arms among military women is quite low. Uh, there have been controversies. A few women made it through ranger training, for instance, but there were compromises made in training that recently came to light uh, in the writing of a book called Stand Down, How Social Engineers Are Sabotaging the U.S. Military. Uh, these, these kinds of indicators of double standards really do not help women in the military. It compromises their lives, and certainly being treated like men makes their lives more difficult and more dangerous. So in the 1970s, did the pro-ERA supporters advocate admitting women in the military as a reason for passing the ERA? Yes, they did. And their reason usually was something like, if we don't do this, we won't see a, a female chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was that simplistic. It was all about diversity. 
It was treating the military like any other equal opportunity employer. But guess what? The facts show, and this is Department of Defense figures going back decades, women are promoted at rates equal to or faster than men in the U.S. military. Uh, we have fewer female officers at high rank for a very simple reason. We don't see as many women in the civilian world, CEOs. Why is that? Because many of them choose to begin families. So because of the free choices of women, uh, we don't see as many in high rank, but it's not because of any kind of discrimination against women. Now, that doesn't mean that women don't have a hard time. And it doesn't mean that they don't encounter sexism from time to time. Sexual assault is a serious problem that we have been following for years. The rates of sexual assault keep skyrocketing year after year after year. And it puts the lie to promises made by feminists going back to the tailhook era in 1991. It was a scandal involving the Navy, the tailhook convention in Las Vegas. And they said, well, let's put women in combat aviation. If we do that, the issue of sexual assaults will go away. Men will, will respect women more. Well, they were wrong then and they're wrong today. Those, those rates are going higher with no end in sight. And I, as I wrote in a recent article, I think we need to figure out whether social engineering that has taken place over the last 10 years is actually contributing to these very high levels of, of abuse of women in the military. Elaine, how did you work alongside Phyllis and then how do you work alongside Eagle Forum now? Well, when I decided to specialize in, in the issues of the military and I went off to be on this Pentagon Advisory Committee, uh, actually two of them uh, over the years, uh, I worked mostly independently from Phyllis, but things that I learned from her really did help me in what I was doing because I'm a civilian woman, um, but I have no hesitation when it comes to calling into question three and four star admirals and generals when I think they're doing the wrong thing. If you read my writings and articles, you see I'm not critical of men or women in the military. I am critical of leaders and I do my homework. I have very uh, good military mentors who, who have um, introduced me in more depth to all the details of military life, the jargon, the acronyms, you have to know those basics. But to challenge high level leaders in the Pentagon, uh, it, it is something that I do all the time. But when you looked at Phyllis Schlafly, she was doing the same thing. She was taking on so many different kinds of adversaries. There was no adversary that was liberal that was beyond her reach. She went after the internationalists and the, the people who, who wanted to have immigration out of control. She went after the educationists, uh, the judicial supremacists, as she put it. Uh, she worked on so many different issues, the education people, those who wanted our school systems not to teach about patriotism and love of country. She took them all on, but she did not do it herself. The secret of her strength was she taught women how to do things on their own. So I'm just one of many. Now I went off and formed my own organization. Not everybody formed their own. Uh, and I've just advised in her later years, whenever Phyllis was writing about anything military, I was more than happy to assist her with any background information that I had that she needed. But like other Eagle Forum ladies who specialized in different areas, when I decided to work uh, on military issues, 
it was uh, a political background that has served me very well. But uh, of course, you have to learn on your own. Most of the Eagle Forum leaders who became uh, well known in their own light, in their own right, really did uh, go at it on their own, and then they would report back. The annual conferences for Eagle Forum were very important because state leaders and issue specialists would report back what they were doing. And if you had a phone conversation with Phyllis Schlafly, you always knew it was, it was going to be very short. She was a master when it came to time management. Uh, my one regret is that Phyllis didn't write a book about time management. She invented uh, multitasking before the word ever was invented. When you were on the phone with her, she would usually cut it very short with two words. She would say, carry on. And that's what people did. They carried on. And many of the Eagle Forum leaders to this day are doing that right now. I think that's so important to note that she allowed you to go out and form your own organization and spread your wings and, and really learn what your niche was and how you could make a big difference. Allow is not the right word. She would show it by example, let's put it that way. And with encouragement, because women knew they would be recognized within that circle of other conservatives who were doing similar things, it was an encouragement that caused uh, individual women to do amazing things. So I was not involved at the state level that much, except during the time when we had to deal with media in the ERA fight uh, to get some fair time under the FCC rules. But the state leadership in their own legislatures, uh, they have become well known as savvy women, very smart women. They know their stuff. They know how to count votes. They know how to be involved in politics. This was the secret of Phyllis Schlafly's impact. Uh, to this day, feminists never understood that. And the way that now we have a television program coming out with a whole new myth, a ridiculous presentation uh, that doesn't even come close to what Phyllis actually did and how she did it. Phyllis and Fred Schlafly were a couple, they were 100% in sync on their political views. And uh, that, that was just well known. Single women involved with Eagle Forum too, that in their own right became leaders in doing specialty kinds of tasks. It was uh, quite a remarkable organization. I would say actually that the election of Ronald Reagan was a, a direct outgrowth of it because there were so many conservative women who stepped forward. Prior to the International Women's Year Conference, which took place in, let's see, 1978, 79, it was in the latter part of the Jimmy Carter administration. Back then, there was no real conservative movement, uh, such as what we saw that got behind Ronald Reagan. But there was a big rally in Houston at the time of that um, International Women's Year Conference. And it was huge. It was absolutely humongous. People had no idea where all those people came from. They were women and men and families, and they filled the Houston Astro Arena. And there was a major uh, conservative reporter there named Jack Kilpatrick. He has since uh, uh, passed away, but he was the, one of the few conservative writers at the time. And I happened to come across him. Again, I was working media at the time. And I saw him sitting cross-legged over on the side of the stage and went over to see, well, what do you think? I asked him, what do you think? And he said, this is something really big. 
he, he recognized this was the beginning of a conservative movement, and it was led by Phyllis Schlafly, but not by herself. She had state leaders everywhere and uh, brought together all different brands of churches and involvement, um, every kind of um, conservative activist you could find, they were there. And it was, it was a really a turning point event, I would say. And yes, I was there. It was quite amazing. That's so cool that you were a part of that. I mean, in essence, it's kind of like the beginning of these powerhouse conservative women and that you were able to be a part of that. A lot of people think that the, you know, the Republican and the party and the and conservatism doesn't have a place mm -hmm. for women to be involved, which Phyllis proved that wrong. And can you expand a little bit more on that and the obstacles that you encountered and, and how your organization, it's, been going on for about 27 years now? Yeah, has, has 27 years. Yeah. We're small. We're an independent think tank. I do research and writing. I, I do get to Washington from time to time. Uh, we've been involved in some major issues, and uh, uh, we don't always win when it comes to uh, battles that take place, but uh, we are, I, I know, respected in the Pentagon. Um, I think people read the articles that I put out there. Um, I think we have been a force for good. Here's the thing, the military, we only have one military, so even when a given administration uh, causes problems to occur, as we saw during the Obama years, it is also a resilient institution. And given new orders, new leadership, the military can respond. I think um, President Trump has recognized that. He has revitalized the military. If he does get reelected, I think he'll do more on the social side he already has on the issue of transgenders in the military he's taken a stand it's very likely to be upheld before the united states supreme court uh, we've been involved in that issue and yes we paid a price sometimes legal involvements um, have been thrown at me it's not been easy but um you just have to believe the american people are not going to allow their military the only military that we have to be destroyed or undermined seriously by social engineering so um, it, it's, it's a constant debate and a constant struggle, but I'm, I'm overall very optimistic and I have total support for the men and women who volunteer to serve. Uh, they're the ones who make the military great. If you could describe the Phyllis you knew in a couple of words, what would you say? She was funny. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you had a chance to really kind of, especially after a conference was over or, uh, there was time to just sit and talk with her a circle of friends in a relaxed atmosphere. She was very funny. Uh, smart people can be very, very funny. And she was one of them. Um, she was also reliable in the advice that she gave uh, whenever an issue came up, a new issue. Uh, you could wait maybe a day or two or a week or two and she would come out with, well, here's what's wrong with that or here's what's good about it. She would look at every issue with certain uh, constitutional principles that she would apply and decide uh, what was the better side of the issue. Sometimes she would take um, time doing that. Sometimes she would seek advice from other people, uh, but she had an, an, an unerring sense of uh, good judgment in deciding not only on which issues to get involved with and, and either uh, support or oppose, uh, most of the time also in terms of candidates. Uh, she was very far-sighted many times in supporting good conservative candidates. 
uh, not always. Some some dis later on disappointed her, but then that's that's the way politics is. Uh, the main thing was that she she did teach a lot an awful lot of people that they could do amazing things if they set their mind to it. They could do anything they wanted. I can't think of a single feminist leader who has really taught that lesson. Um, we know many many successful women in many fields, and and we admire them for the work that they do, and respect them. But in terms of politics, the conservative women uh, were and still are a force to be reckoned with. And she always was very, it wasn't just always praise. Sometimes she would give constructive criticism. I got my share of that. But she always knew that it was because she wanted everybody to do their best. And it, it invariably uh, did result in, I remember that during the ERA years, month after month, year after year, she always used to say, okay, there's a battle coming up in Illinois or Wisconsin or some other state. She said, if you don't hear any news on the news, that means our side won. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much the way it was. Uh, one time the um, leaders of the um, ERA forces in Illinois found out that Phyllis was going to be speaking in Alabama where Uni Smith was had invited Phyllis to speak to a really large conference in, in, in a, was at the legislature involving many state legislators. But when they found out she was going to be out of town, at the very last minute, she asked me, of all people, had zero experience in public speaking at that point, to go to Alabama and speak at the state capitol in her place so that she could be in Illinois during one of the ERA battles. And it was hilarious because, well, I, I mean, I honestly didn't know how to deliver a public speak or speaking engagement or anything like that. I was as best prepared as I could, but I didn't realize that I was also going to be the dinner speaker that evening. <laughs> and when Uni said, okay, you're up next, I said, what? <laughs> and uh, so I had to kind of wing it. And that was a good thing because even though I didn't have the speech that I had prepared earlier in the day in front of me, I realized that it wasn't as bad as I thought. And uh, again, you find out you can do more than you think. What was that phrase she used to use? Um, like a tea bag, you don't know how strong you are until you're in hot water. Uh, something like that. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so there were a lot of little funny experiences like that that um, she just got a kick out of it. And she said, okay, carry on. <laughs> Along those same lines, what was the best piece of advice that she gave you? Know the opposition's case better than they themselves know it. I took it to mean research the arguments of the other side, be prepared for a debate so that you could, you could in theory, debate either side of the same issue. Uh, this was something, again, I didn't have that kind of formal training, that is what they teach in uh, debate classes, I'm sure, but it's something that serves you well because if you are prepared, then nothing will be thrown up at you that is a surprise. So, that to me was good advice and I, I try to this day to do that even now. You had mentioned earlier that you had attended uh, the convention with Phyllis and a lot of other women who supported Phyllis um, and you're still very involved with not only the convention but the platform which which sets the tenets for the Republican Party. Republican platform uh, for years has been a very staunch statement of principle uh, that Republican administrations have uh, respected. 
and this goes back many, many years, uh, the, the platform process is sometimes dismissed as not important. But the reason it's important is that when you're involved with the platform, you get to know people who will late, later be part of the administration. So uh, it's part of the give and take. I was a national delegate in 1984. Uh, that was a tremendous experience just to be there. But um, the political world only can do so much. Uh, what I do as a, a small think tank is specialize on the issues that other people can take the information that we publish and run with it. And, and I try to write my articles so that they are credible with military people. Of course, you have to get the acronyms and ranks and all the superficial things correctly, correctly but also I'm pretty fearless when it comes to say, saying what I think is right or wrong about policies. And it doesn't really matter what somebody's rank is, or maybe they do something right this month, if they do something wrong the next month, I hold them accountable. Uh, this is what we do, and I'll continue doing it. A lot of people don't even know that the platform exists, and um, it seems insignificant, but when you read what the Republican Party stands for compared to what the Democrat Party stands for, you can see such a contrast, especially with the 2016 platform. We had a contrast article. The uh, liberal factions of the party, they really do want to use the military as a, well, petri dish for social engineering and experiments, uh, but also to push the idea of diversity for diversity's sake. And, and it's important to understand this word. I always thought of diversity as a positive thing, to have people of all different backgrounds involved in a unified way. That's a good thing. But when you talk about diversity in terms of percentages, dividing people by superficial characteristics, you're talking about something very different. And it's not about non-discrimination, and it's not about respecting people's individual work and giving them credit for the work they do. Gender diversity metrics is the phrase that's operative in the military today and has been for quite a few years. What it means is quotas. Quotas are not helpful to women. They're not helpful to anyone. So uh, gender diversity metrics is what the um, one political party is behind all the time. Um, the Republicans, sometimes you have to keep an eye on them too, because sometimes they want to use that word not realizing just how, what a double meaning it has. Uh, I should stress we are nonpartisan. We're uh, independent, 501c3. We don't endorse candidates. We don't interview candidates. Uh, but we do provide as much guidance as we can for guidance at all levels. Have there been times that you've been able to work uh, in a nonpartisan fashion where both Republicans and Democrats agree on the same issue? It's rare. <laughs> it is rare on the social issues. Sometimes they'll agree about the need to replenish ammunition and weapon systems, things like that. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, those are the easy issues. Uh, when Reagan took office after four years of Jimmy Carter, the military became known as a hollow force. So Reagan decided to build missile defenses. That was another one of Phyllis's causes. Uh, missile defenses and making the military stronger. He won the Cold War without a shot because he built the, uh, rebuilt the strength of the military. But that was easy compared to what President Trump will have to do in the next administration if he is reelected. 
because you have to rebuild the culture of the military. What I write about all the time is the culture of the military. It's very different than the civilian world. Whenever you talk about civilian military gap, what that means is the military ought to be more like the civilian world. No, it can't. I disagree. You can't run the military like a labor union. You don't have labor unions in the military. It's not just an equal opportunity employer. Commanders send people into harm's way, knowing many of them will be killed. It's done for national security reasons. So when you introduce civilian concepts like gender diversity metrics and quotas, what you're doing is endangering the lives of both men and women in the armed forces. And this is something that I think in the next four years after the election, after the current emergency is over with, we're gonna to have to have a serious debate about gender diversity metrics, not just in the civilian world, but especially in the military, because that's where lives are at risk, that's where everything is a life and death issue. Uh, we need sound leadership and a new president with the sound values. And if the pr new president gives orders from the top on down, look, this is the way we're going to run our armed forces. And if it becomes standard operating procedure, that is something that I would like to see happen in the next four years, especially after the election, if not before. It's definitely something to think about in that realizing that the military is so different than civilian life and the two aren't necessarily compatible in, in terms of policy. That's right. And, and that's why it's so special. Mm -hmm. that's why the people who volunteer to serve are so special. Mm -hmm. Another issue that's on the horizon, and I do want to mention this one because it's what I started out with, whether uh, young women should be subject to selective service registration and a possible future draft. After all these, all these years, decades actually, we have a major national commission that has just come out with a report recommending this, that women be subject to the draft. Uh, and they have done so with, well, a three-year commitment, $45 million taxpayer dollars, uh, to come out with a report that mixes up the two issues of selective service and drafting women and national service. That means, um, well, it means every young person being subject to bureaucratic dictates, uh, you will serve the government in one way or another. The problem I have, and I'm just now beginning research to uh, come out with an analysis of this report, the problem with the concept is it implies that every person is raised uh, to serve the government and that um, you, the only question is how you will serve the government. Well, we, of course, we want to encourage volunteer service in our communities. Uh, this is a good thing. We like volunteer service. But what this report is talking about is a cabinet level council that would dictate to every young person in America, oh, you will serve the government. The only question is how and when. And it would include military service. And the argument will be made, well, don't worry about your daughters being drafted. She can always sign up for national service. And I met with members of this commission. They were actually very cordial. We had three meetings. And when I said to them, wait a minute. Who says that every person should work for the government? They looked astonished that nobody had ever said that to them before. Well, we need to start from the basic premises that we're, that we're beginning with here. This commission was set up, by the way, by the late Senator John McCain. National service was one of his pet projects. And so three years after he got this into the defense bill, rather than draft our daughters, the commission has done exactly what I predicted it would do, and that is come out with recommendations for both draft our daughters and national service.
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Elaine, for your time. And thank you for listening to this episode of Engage with Eagle Forum. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.